This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden signing the Respect for Marriage Act into law. And while it goes farther than anything else in federal law in protecting marriage rights for same-sex couples, it does not, in fact, legalize same-sex marriage. We'll go in-depth and give you a primer on what the act does and what it doesn't do. The arrest of cryptocurrency guru Sam Bankman-Fried is yet another blow to the cryptocurrency that at one point was touted as the future of financial transactions in this country. We'll take a broader look at the future of crypto and ask whether it will ever make a good investment. And the end times are near, apparently, for plenty of Americans. We're going to take a closer look at a new survey that finds two in five Americans believe we are living in the middle of Armageddon. Well, the nuclear fusion breakthrough at a California research laboratory being called revolutionary and a game changer in creating clean, limitless energy. Well, we might have taken one step closer to harnessing the power of the sun. How soon before it makes a difference in any of our lives? And at the end of the show today, the last living lineage to Hawaii's royal family has passed away. We'll look at Hawaii's history as a one-time sovereign state with a royal family and how the passing of a princess means the end of an era in the Pacific. Yeah, it's interesting how many Americans don't realize that uh, there was actually a Hawaiian royal family. We'll get into that more in the segment. Uh, and uh, the person who died was the last of that line, the, the last of a, of a species in a way. We start, though, with the uh, Respect for Marriage Act. Gregory Nevins is senior counsel at Lambda Legal. It's a group dedicated to protecting LGBTQ legal rights. Gregory, thanks for being with us. So in a nutshell, tell us, what does this act that the president is signing do, but maybe perhaps as importantly, what doesn't it do? Well, it, it, it does what federal law can do, basically. In the if, in federal law, you know, it if you, a lot of people probably are vaguely aware of this, but you know, if you want to find out whether you can marry at age seventeen and whether you can marry your um, first cousin, you would, you would, that would be a state by state question, and and uh, and uh, you probably want to check with Wikipedia; they can help you with that. But but it, there's a there's and every state has a different answer for the you know so they're uh, uh, or they're grouped and and they can and they provide different answers because the states generally determine. Um, you know who who can marry whom, and uh, but uh, and they don't they don't exercise that except with very few exceptions like age and and a degree of relationship. Um, but the federal law it does federal law gets to say what what counts for federal law purposes, um, and federal law gets to say what uh, what states have to recognize uh, between states. Um, so um, under the full faith and credit provision of the federal constitution. Which gives Congress that so, power. So, so essentially, essentially, what this what this law is going to do is to say if if uh, uh, if a uh, same sex couple was married in California and they travel to a, a very very red state where they don't recognize same sex marriage, they don't perform them. They can't uh, say to that couple if they move there, you're not married here in the state, right? That is yes, that is the idea. And 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 we should preface this by saying, that of course, they can't do that now at all because of the Obergefell uh, uh, Supreme Court decision. This legislation was designed and to to cover the um, the uh, uh, possibility that 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 Clarence Thomas uh, uh, put out there in, in the Dobbs decision that the court should revisit some of its other precedents recent uh, of recent vintage and um, and and uh, overrule those. So this was done right now. Of course, no 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 state could do that. No state could say 
um, you know, we, we don't like that kind of marriage. We're not going to recognize it uh, under the Obergefell precedent. But yeah, um, yeah you, may, you that, mentioned, Gregory, you, yes. men, you mentioned in mentioning the Supreme Court that 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 sort of touches on the question I was going to ask, which is that there was a, a lot of uh, haste in getting this act approved by Congress before the House converts to Republican leadership in uh, the new year. Uh, and that haste was predicated on the notion that there was this possibility, as you just pointed out, because of the comments uh, that Clarence Thomas made, that the Supreme Court down the road might overturn its own previous rulings. Uh, let's say the Supreme Court does do that in the future. It does take up the suggestion of Clarence Thomas, and it does, uh, uh, as it took away a woman's right to abortion after greater than half a century, it does overturn its previous ruling. How does this measure that the president has signed impact or work with that? Which would take precedent? Oh, well, th this measure, this measure would, 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 um, would take precedent because all that, all that the, I mean, that, that was a way of, that was a way of requiring the states to recognize um, same-sex marriages as a, as a principle of equal protection in the constitution. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and the uh, um, um, and, and, and the substantive liberty protections for, you know, the right to get married to the person, you know, that you choose to. Um, so that that was based on. So that was the so the Supreme Court, um, you know, used used what, it, what was in it, its domain in 2015 when it made that ruling. It's it, it's it, it decides what is equal treatment of people and it, it decides what um, what what people have the fundamental right to do. And it said. And it, that's why, and it ruled in favor of marriage equality in 2015. All right. Even if you take, take that off the table, Congress, Congress's role is in dictating what 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 full faith and credit will be get due to the acts and proceedings um, and records of another state. All right. So. Uh, thank you so much. We've got to leave it there. Uh, Gregory Nevin, Senior Counsel at Lambda Legal, a group dedicated to protecting LGBTQ legal rights. Coming up, should you still have anything to do with the cryptocurrency world? You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. And coming up in the second half hour of In-Depth, it certainly sounds cool enough. Multiple high-powered lasers aimed at hydrogen fuel, creating the same kind of energy that comes from the sun. But how soon will nuclear fusion make a difference in any of our lives? Right now, though, uh, cryptocurrency currency was in trouble long before the alleged fraud was revealed at the Bit Crypto trading platform FTX, but while the arrest of FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried puts another dent in crypto's reputation, does it sink crypto as an investment altogether? Felix Salmon is the chief financial correspondent at Axios and host of the uh, Slate uh, Money podcast. Uh, Felix, thanks for being with us. So I guess after this, uh, why would one, if one has the money to invest in crypto, invest in crypto it's a very good question it does seem to have this habit of going poof just when you don't want it to um i think there are some people who just believe that it is a good long-term investment and that you can keep your bitcoin or your ethereum on a hard drive basically in your safe not connected to the internet and uh, eventually all of the big currencies of the world are going to get debased by inflation and it will be the last currency standing. And if you believe even that, if you believe that the dollar will 
inflate its way into nothingness along with everything else, stocks and bonds, and you just want crypto, then you can hold your crypto in your bank safe or under your mattress. So there are some people still doing yeah, that. Yeah, but I was going to say, but if you believe all the stuff you just said, if, if one believes that, doesn't one also have to buy a bunch of bridges for sale? So far, you've been lucky. I mean, <laughs> crypto is down a lot this year, you know, probably 70, 80%, something like that. It has fallen that much in the past. And every time anyone has held gone through any of those falls in the past it has rebounded this one feels different though because nowadays there's much less feeling of like there is going to be a big utopia built on crypto that there used to be people used to be able to point at the future and say it's all going to be great in the future and now i'm seeing fewer people do that because all of those dreams have kind of crumbled especially the the ones involving trading well, part of the issue, I think, is, and I'm not an economist, I, I did not study it in college or anything like that, but it strikes me as as a layperson that uh, building a, an economy that's decentralized, because it's the idea behind cryptocurrency, it's decentral, decentralized currency, uh, plug it into an economy that is by necessity centralized because the world is very global now. The economy is very global now. What affects one big country affects a lot of other big countries. Isn't that just a misfire from the beginning? Yeah, I think there's, the word is incommensurable. You know, it's a good word. Like, they just don't work well together. You can have currencies and commerce and trade and paychecks and everything that makes the world go around and going to the grocery store and buying your groceries for the week. Or you can sit on a Bitcoin, which has almost no actual real-world utility. And they've been working in parallel with each other, and they've barely touched each other. And this is one of the reasons why the big crypto crash hasn't actually had much effect on the real world, because the crypto world really isn't connected to the, re to the real world. But you're absolutely right that because it's not connected to the real world, that's a very good indication that it's not really worth anything. It doesn't have any utility. I always wonder how very smart people, and this happens time and time again with these both schemes, and in this case, I suppose, alleged scheme, uh, how so many smart people tend to buy into it. And, and you wonder why. Is it just greed? Is it the notion that uh, if, it, if it seems too good to be true, these people think then it is true? <laughs> I think part of it with crypto is that very smart people often really like mathematics. And there's some very clever mathematics <laughs> und underlying the blockchain. The the cryptography there, the, cri the crypto part of cryptocurrency, the way that you have zero knowledge proofs and you're multiplying prime numbers and doing all of the clever stuff with math, that like appeals to nerds. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, it, it occurred to me, by the way, uh, you described it early on, and, and that would be a perfect uh, slogan for the crypto, the currency that goes puff. <laughs> <laughs> exactly if, if you, if, the one thing you get to do with crypto is just watch your currency go puff you can't it's hard to do that with other, other investments a friend of mine on uh, uh twitter uh, had an interesting tweet said uh, you know i certainly hope that people don't lose faith in crypto just because it's a ponzi scheme um and and i'm sure he was kidding but is there any truth to that is it does it have the kind of a smell of a ponzi scheme sometimes because i think some people think it does Oh, 100%. If the, the entire 
basis of crypto is people piling in in the hope that they will be able to take that crypto that they bought for one price and turn around and sell it for a higher price to someone else in the future, even though the thing that they have bought has not changed and they have not added any value to it. And no one else has added any value to it either. It's basically what <laughs> we call in economics the greater fool theory. And it works until it doesn't. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if the three of us can get uh, that, that uh, slogan trademark. Mm -hmm. You know, the crypto, the <laughs> currency that goes because there's a way to make some real money. The, yeah, the, the Super Bowl ads are going to be much cheaper this year because all of the <laughs> cryptocurrency <laughs> companies have pulled out so we could buy one for cheap. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Felix Salmon is the uh, chief financial uh, correspondent at Axios and host of the Slate Money podcast. This goes poof, poof, <laughs> poof. Uh, OK, now the end. Uh, this is serious. The end is near. I mean, like like the end of the planet, or mm -hmm. at least at least a lot of Americans believe it is when we come back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. Well, a little bit later on uh, in the show, the last link to Hawaii's pre-colonial past, a direct descendant of the old Hawaiian royal family. She's dead, and her passing is a good opportunity to look back at a very controversial and violent way in which Hawaii ended up becoming an American state and a cool place to go for a vacation. Right now, though, a new survey from Pew on the intersection of climate change and religion contained a very interesting and telling nugget of data. Nearly two in five Americans, including both Christians and the religiously unaffiliated, that's what's interesting here, responded affirmatively when they were asked if they believed that we are living in the end times. Becca Alper is a senior researcher on religions at the Pew Research Center. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. And as you are an expert in this, I, I, you are no doubt aware that uh, you can go back to ancient uh, historical writings and people writing, look at the youth of today. Is there any doubt that we are living in the end times uh, from as far back as 2000 uh, B.C.? Uh, and I grew up in an even evangelical Christian uh, world in a, in a town and a family that was very involved in that. And, and even as a child, I remember being told that, you know, Jesus is coming back within the next decade at the latest, before the end of this decade, you know, it, the rapture is going to happen. It's the end of the world. But we're seeing a lot more of that now. And when it comes to climate change, you know, it's it's a hard sell to sell someone on saving the planet when they think the planet is about to end and uh, in whatever scenario your religion has of the end of the world. Uh, how do you draw that distinction there? And why do we seem to be seeing a lot more of this end times talk today? Well, I think one thing to keep in mind with this is that the survey didn't define the end times for respondents. So when people answer this question, they could have been thinking about a range of things they may associate with it. Some may have been thinking about the end times as described in their scripture. Others may have been thinking about other things such as extreme weather events or the pandemic. But the survey indicates that however they understood the question, roughly six in 10 Americans do not believe we are living in the end times. And this includes majorities of Catholics, mainline Protestants, and people who do not affiliate with the religion. So the minority, though, then, that, that do believe that, what accounts for that? Is it, in some cases, is it wishful thinking? Well, I mean, so this survey was designed to really understand the relationship between uh, religion and views about the environment. And so this was meant to... Um, test the proposition that, so there's this theory that people who believe humanity is living in the last days may be less concerned about the 
danger to the climate change and those who do not think the world is soon coming to an end. So we use these questions to really understand that relationship. And what we find is that there's just a modest relationship between end times beliefs and concerns about the climate change. So those who believe humanity is living in the end times are less likely than those who do not believe this to say they think climate change is an extremely or very serious problem. And with end time believers who hold a premillennialist view, that, that perspective you're just talking about, expressing the lowest levels of concern about climate change. But even so, even in this latter group, two thirds say climate change is at least a somewhat serious problem. So that's what, that's what these questions were really uh, meant to help tease out. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that even among those who think we are living in some kind of end times right now and and not having anything to do uh, with the, any kind of religious prophecy, uh, climate change is going to be the number one thing because, you know, we're being told of how much danger the planet is in. But I think some people also have the idea of it might not be the end of the world per se. It might be the end of us on the world. The planet will go on happily without us as it did before we got here. Uh, but that can affect your mindset and a number of things like planning for the future and having a positive uh, mental outlook and, and just basically not feeling depressed all the time. Is that to uh, reflect in the mental health problems that we have? Um, that's something that this survey didn't cover, but I can say that, you know, you mentioned um, thinking about the future. And um, one thing that that we explored is that um, you know, we, we ask questions about, you know, uh, ask people which uh, statements come uh, close to describing their views. Do you want to live the best life you can right now and not worry too much about the future? Or are you willing to make sacrifices in the way you live if you knew it would help future generations? And we find that those who are willing, more willing to make sacrifices to help future generations are more likely to say that climate change is an extremely or very serious problem. All right. Thank you so much. Becca Alper, senior researcher on religions at the Pew Research Center. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. It has been called revolutionary and a game changer for the elusive quest for clean, limitless power through nuclear fusion. For the first time ever in a laboratory, researchers were able to generate more energy from fusion reactions than they used to start the process. That does not, however, mean that nuclear fusion is anywhere close to, to powering your house. Now, while it has taken about half a century to get to this point, it may very well take another 50 years before nuclear fusion is perfected and made efficient enough so that it can be a practical energy source. Dr. Omar Hurricane is a thermonuclear physicist and chief scientist at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory's Inertial Confinement Fusion Program. That's a mouthful right there. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, your intro is uh, right on point. Okay, well, that's good Good to know. So, so tell us, though, uh, from a practical point of view, because that's what people ultimately want to know, is what does this really mean to all of us? And more importantly, when does it mean it? Yeah, well, this is uh, certainly a scientific accomplishment. Uh, what it demonstrates uh, commercially, though, that fusion has really no other physical obstacles that prevent it from working. So I think it's largely an engineering challenge from here uh, to make it useful for everybody's use. 
And I, I think that saying just the engineering challenges remain is a pretty good sign for those of us that, that follow, you know, scientific progress, because basically that means there are problems here. Engineers kind of understand what the problems are. Now it's just a matter of figuring out how to make it work. But if we do make it work, is there a concern that, say, the fossil fuel industry might look at this and go, we got to stop this. It's nuclear. People should be afraid of it. Uh, there's going to be radiation. It's going to cause uh, COVID. It's going to do all this kind of stuff. Are, are scientists kind of worried about that? And would that be a big obstacle in getting this over the finish line if you do get fusion to work practically? I hope not. I, I don't uh, believe there's any real conspiracy out there to stop this from working, although our culture is leaning towards conspiracy theories these days. And I think uh, energy uh, fossil fuel companies are tend to think of themselves as energy companies. So uh, if, if they like, they certainly could be partners in developing this further. And I'm hoping that's the case. Okay, so I, I guess the the uh, uh, skeptical person in me, uh, which is a large chunk, uh, is going to ask this question. What's the downside to this? Because in almost every case, not all, but in almost every case, when things are newly discovered and we're told about all the upsides, it turns out that as years go by, we kind of learn about the downsides. What's the downside of this? Is there one? Well, certainly uh, it's been challenging to get it to work in the first place. You know, the physics is is very difficult because we're trying to reproduce the conditions or exceed the conditions at the center of the sun on Earth. And the engineering challenges I just mentioned are non-trivial. Uh, the other challenge to this that makes it uh, maybe a little uh more difficult is the fusion reaction that we use in particular produces neutrons and neutrons are a difficulty that need to be uh, addressed for any practical uh, fusion power plant. And nothing is free. Uh, this is we're talking if this works, uh, limitless, uh, relatively clean energy compared to the other ways we've got of extracting energy. So this is going to cost something. Uh, will it be? Let's say we have fusion nuclear power plants uh, 50, 75 years down the road. Is it going to cost more than what we pay for energy now, or is it going to be something that's going to be like the best thing that ever happened to the planet, and it's going to be I'm not as expensive? I'm not an economist, and it's very hard to project anything that far in the future. Of course, as fossil fuels uh, dry out and and have even uh, more impact on our environment, uh, I suspect uh, those are not going to be cheap either. Uh, but I really can't say. The were you? I know. I know. There's been sort of incremental progress over the years. In fact, we mentioned this on our show yesterday that uh, scientists in England, uh, I believe it was in England last year, in the UK anyway, uh, came very close to to what was accomplished here. But but you know, like they say, close but no prize. Uh, so were you ultimately surprised? Did you think that maybe this is one of those things that would always be just slightly out of reach? Uh, I would say 10 years ago, I was very skeptical myself uh, when I first joined this program. Uh, I think in the last two, two years, there was a significant turning point when we achieved uh, what's called a burning plasma in the laboratory. At that moment, two years ago, uh, I think it became not a matter of if, but when we would achieve uh, this month's result. So uh, I think things are looking pretty bright now. Now, we're told this is going to be safer than nuclear fission uh, power generation, but there I'm sure there are some dangers. Could a fusion uh, reaction get out of control and uh, blow up? 
No, no, not at all. Uh, because Fusion is so difficult to get started in the first place, if you lose any control over it, it stops. The other aspect of Fusion is it's like burning uh, uh, wood in your fireplace. And once that log is burned up, there's no more energy. So it's not at all like Fission, where you can get a runaway chain reaction that you completely lose control of. So the idea, for example, down the road, if this all works out, would be you would have fusion that would be generating uh, electricity that would then presumably, as more and more people switch to electric-powered cars, right, uh, that would give the electric that would go into the cars, so that would be one sort of continuous chain. Is that it? Yeah, fusion is definitely part of the electric economy. And uh, once the, those neutrons that I mentioned earlier uh, leave the, the fusion reaction, that's actually how we extract heat out. And the heat is used to make steam. Steam is used to turn an electric generator uh, the way almost any other uh, electric generating plant works. I'm sure you've been, by the way, hit with this before, but how did you end up not being a meteorologist with that name? Yeah, actually, <laughs> I was going to ask that. <laughs> actually, when I was a student, I got hired by several. Uh, I got hired by the National uh, Center for Atmospheric Research and NOAA, right. uh, I think largely because of my name, although I did. I was good at math. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Omar Hurricane, which yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, is, great name. I'm going to steal that name and make it the name of my new band. <laughs> so thank you so much. Uh, thermonuclear physicist, chief scientist at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, inertial confinement fusion program. Okay, we have more of in-depth in just a few minutes. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. You know, we were talking before, Rob, about uh, Hawaii, and we were all talking about, like, what comes to mind when you think uh, or say Hawaii and, you know, vacations and, uh, you know... Scenic uh, beauty. Scenic beauty, yeah. right, that sort of thing. But, but what's really kind of interesting is that over the weekend, but it was just announced today, the sur last surviving member of the Hawaiian royal family, yes, America actually had a royal family in Hawaii, its last surviving member, Princess, at the age of, I think it was 96, died, leaving behind, by the way, an estate worth in excess of $200 million. And uh, what a lot of Americans don't realize is that back, you know, before Hawaii became a state and before it became a really cool place to go for vacation, mm -hmm. uh, it was its own kingdom. Mm -hmm. And it had a king and a queen. and Sovereign you know, nation. Sovereign nation. And American business people back in the 1800s overthrew the Hawaiian government, or well, the, the, the royalty anyway, uh, and eventually, of course, it, it, it managed to become a state in the United States of America. But nonetheless, we had a royal family, and she actually died mm -hmm. in what is the only royal residence anywhere on U.S. property. That's interesting. And you mentioned a, a, an estate worth $200 million, which yeah. is quite a bit of money. You could vacation in Hawaii for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, closer to home, it's been another day of chaos inside the chambers of the L.A. City Council. And if that's sounding like a pattern for weeks now, that's because it's been a pattern for weeks now. And the problem and source of the chaos, pretty clear. It's Kevin DeLeon, the embattled city councilman, who has refused to resign after his role in a racism and corruption controversy at the council. DeLeon has tried several times now to show up to council meetings, acting as if it's, well, you know, business as usual. But uh, neither DeLeon's fellow council members nor the activists in the crowd want anything to do with him. In the meantime, council business has been more or less paralyzed for weeks because of all this. Craig Figner has been covering this for 
KNX. He's uh, with us now. Craig, thank you for joining us. So what is the situation right now as it stands? Rob, this is, you know, the eighth week of this chaos here at the L.A. City Council, and this is, I think, probably, if not the most, the second most disruptive meeting that I have covered, where protesters have literally shut things down. I say maybe the second worst, because in this case, the LAPD wasn't brought in, at least not yet, to clear the chamber under the order of a lawful assembly. Talking with Michael here, and you have been one of the loud protesters today. What did you think when you saw Kevin DeLeon at the dais there at his seat, sitting? I thought about the fact that for almost two months now, he has been evading the justice that he deserves. I've thought about the fact that he's going to into his community, the community that he claims he loves and supports, and canceling pro programs, canceling resources, not showing up to stuff, shut down a turkey drive early, um, leaving dozens of people without, a, without turkeys that he promised them. Um, I think about how he has been an ineffective and terrible leader for CD14. And I think about how if CD14's residents should be looking and searching their community because there are some great people in that community to look for somebody that can replace them. All right, uh, Craig Figner covering the uh, chaos in the city council uh, chambers for us today on KNX. Now also with us is Sarah Sedwana. He was a professor of politics at Pomona College. Uh, Sarah, thanks for being with us. What is being accomplished, do you think, by De Leon making these attempts? Not attempts, he shows up, but it doesn't accomplish anything except create this, this chaos at the city council. Is he just trying, do you think, to prove that he's doing something for the money he's being paid by taxpayers? You know, my sense of this situation is this is the ultimate chess match. Uh, I tend to be more pragmatic about these things. There's a lot of emotions and passions um, flying, obviously, and for good reason around this matter. Uh, but, you know, at, as far as the rules, the, the, the actual city charter goes, Kevin DeLeon is still in office. He hasn't been charged with any crimes. And as an elected official who he has refused to resign, he does have a duty to show up to meetings. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a real challenge because obviously people don't want him there. The, his fellow colleagues don't want him there. Uh, the protesters, many of whom are not from his district, don't want him there. There is a process to remove him. That is a, a recall process, and I believe that is underway ultimately according to the rules of, of, this, of the city of Los Angeles. If folks want to get Kevin DeLeon out of office, we need to have a recall. Yeah, but, but I, I, I get all of that. But there is such a thing as being a statesperson, right? And, and taking, whether it's a city or a state or a country, uh, somewhat above your own, your, yourself. And all the things that you've just ticked off, of course, are true. Uh, he was elected. Uh, he has a right to be there until he's either recalled or if he goes through his term, he's voted out of office. That being said... He is not a stupid man. He, he realizes that by being there, it is actually stopping the work that needs to be done for not only his constituents, but for the rest of the city of Los Angeles. So doesn't there come a point where he has to say, you know, I could stand on ceremony and let the city go down the drain or I can do I can just take myself out of the situation, if not resign, at least don't show up so that the city can do its business. That's absolutely right. And and certainly it would be much easier if he resigned um, for everyone involved for the city, for sure, um, because then we could move on and address the big issues of homelessness, because I think that is that is an ongoing issue. And of course, this is all putting a, a, a casting a, a shadow over 
what was meant to be a really historic week of a brand new mayor taking office uh, and her momentum around uh, declaring a state of emergency. So it would be much easier if he did resign. That being said, he is there, and it's it's also it, while you know he is he is in this position of choosing whether or not to come. It's his duty to actually come, and it, at, at the same time, that's why I say it's really a chess match. Will the other members of the council leave and break quorum so that the meeting can't move forward, or will they eventually? end up staying so that that work can be done it's it's right. unclear how this is going to play out over the several months that you know he has two more years left in office yeah um, sarah i was going to ask you because uh, we're running out of time here i want to ask you very quickly uh some say he's staying for the paycheck if that's the case if that's what he's staying for uh, what are the chances that the rest of the city council might say oh well if you want money we'll give you money to go away I mean, let's see. I don't. I don't know. That hasn't been an, uh, an idea on the table yet. But <laughs> anything's possible moving forward. <laughs> this is Los uh, Angeles, be, after all. Exactly. I think it'll be interesting to see what is Mayor Bass's posture towards Kevin DeLeon. Of course, they both served in the state legislature together um, and have a long history of working together. I'm curious to see how how she might. Uh, interact with him moving forward. All right. Thank you so much. Sarah Sudwani, uh, professor of politics at Pomona College. And that's going to do it for KNX uh, In-Depth for today. We will do this again tomorrow with all different stuff coming up on KNX.